Today, I speak to Alex Renton, journalist and author of Blood Legacy, the story of his discovery of his family's ties to slavery when rummaging about in the cellar of his family home and unearthing letters and account books that tell a hidden history. We discuss how this shocking discovery reframed the story he had always held about his ancestors and Britain and its empire, altering the landscape around him. Today he is the founding member of Heirs of Slavery, a small but growing group of descendants who have uncovered their ancestors' involvement in enslavement of Africans and are using their privilege and influence to lobby for the wrongs of the past to be acknowledged and are calling for action to help alleviate its legacy which they believe still impacts the descendants both in Britain and in the Americas today. Alex, I've read your book and scribbled notes all over it, um, Blood Legacy, which looks in depth at your family history and uncovering its connection to slavery. Can you just tell us how your journey into the past began? Sure. It was completely haphazard. Uh, my mum's my family, who uh, are sort of grand or were very grand Scottish landowners, particularly in the 18th and 19th century. I mean, they're, they're the sort of family that keeps records, I mean, not least because they're living in the same house that my ancestors lived in 500 years ago. And, and I was down in the basement where my grandfather had, had catalogued a lot of uh, family records, um, really going back to the 16th century. My grandfather was a historian, professional historian, and, and I was and just sort of poking around uh, out of interest. This is about five, six years ago. And, and I kept coming across the words Tobago and Jamaica, uh, and I had no idea why. And, and I asked my mother what this was about, and she said, oh, yes, that's a bit embarrassing. Um, we, we were involved in plantation ownership in the Caribbean and slave ownership, uh, and that... I shouldn't worry about it too much because we didn't make much money. I'm quoting directly here. Um, it, we didn't do it for a very long and everyone else was doing it anyway. So this is an absolute shock to me. I mean, I'd been, you know, like so many posh British people, been brought up to kind of worship my ancestors as sort of philanthropists and great soldiers of the empire, the greatest empire the world had ever known. A benevolent empire, I was taught. And so, as, you know, as a journalist... Uh, with historical interests, I had to look. So, so really, it took about a year transcribing, you know, hundreds of letters and accounts books and reading all this stuff to to find out that it they had made money and it it wasn't very quick, but it was certainly true that all their neighbours were investing and buying African people and land in the Caribbean at the same time. And and, and I thought this isn't this story shouldn't be hidden. It's about today's Britain and. It's very wrong that we've got control of it and, and it's hidden away from the descendants of the enslaved. So that's how I started. Could you tell me about your more recent uh, group that you've set up, a lobbying group called Heirs of Slavery? Can you explain the purpose of it and the reaction that you've had since setting it up? Yes, so Heirs of Slavery you know, is a sort of loose group of um, currently about seven or eight people, um, all of whom have come to acknowledge that their ancestors, that their families were enriched by British slavery in the Caribbean and enslavement of people in West Africa. And I think all of us, what we have in common is that we, we don't think the consequences of that story are over and that there is a place for us to acknowledge that fact that British slavery still toxifies 
and contaminates society here and in the Caribbean and, and still affects the lives of those who are descended from the enslaved. But the point really was to move beyond making the sort of charitable donations that some of us do make out of our pockets to, to uh, organisations trying to help uh, um, disadvantaged people in the Caribbean and in Britain. Um, but to use what influence and power we have from our privilege to support groups calling for national and institutional reparations, the kinds of acts of repair and that can lead to reconciliation and, and real change in, in the inequality and poverty and racism that affects our society today, partly because of British transatlantic slavery. Well, that, that's very interesting. So you're actually using almost the old boys network to bring this issue up. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I think that's a way of putting it. I, I mean, I mean, I think that's certainly part of it. I mean, I mean, I think you know, what's absolutely clear is that you know, while I personally don't you know have any of the wealth of slavery attached to me, I, I am a privileged uh, middle class white well, you know, upper class some might say white person. You know, I had a fantastic education, and and I am much more connected, closer to power than most people in Britain. And I'm not that because of anything I've earned. Um, I'm that because of the, the, the privilege in, uh, that I was born with. Uh, I, I am a descendant of slavery, but I'm a descendant of, of the benefits of slavery, if it can be put that way. And, you know, in the discussions after I published my book two years ago, and, and while I was researching it with, with people who are descended from those who were enslaved, I was very often asked... When I said, what should I do with this knowledge? People said, well, use it to help to support us, to, to ally yourself with us. You know, don't you know, acknowledge first, stop being like so many white people, which is denying the significance of this history, but, but use the influence and, and you have to support what, what we ask for. And that seemed to me absolutely just and justified. And I think everyone in the, the Heirs of Slavery group a agrees with that principle. And have you had a good response since it launched? Yeah, I, we've had an amazing response. I, I mean, it, we launched it what, nearly two months ago and um, quite a lot of um, press attention in the UK and, and a lot beyond, um, not in the Caribbean and in the United States and Canada, as you'd expect, because, you know, places where the... the descendants of this, the enslaved are and, and where the diaspora has led them, um, but, but also from other countries that have their own colonial reinvestigation to do, like France and Portugal and so on. You know, we've struck a, we have struck a chord. We've had some pretty violent and nasty criticism from, from that powerful gang of, I call them the, the old white right, um, who believe that any criticism of Britain's imperial acts is an attack on the country today and, and dishonest. But, but we expected that. What, what's been really encouraging and, and, and kind of shaming, I suppose, is just how, how generous and, and welcoming the response has been from uh, people who are descended from the enslaved. It kind of makes you go, why haven't more of us spoken up like this and, and done it sooner? And I'm, I, I, how would you answer that question of aren't you doing Britain down? I, I, I think I find that, that accusation absurd, really. I, th I think a, a decent 
country that wants to confront its problems and move forward in the 21st century in a spirit of peace and reconciliation needs to be honest about its history. And, and what's plainly true is that although I have you know, one of the most expensive educations available in Britain, I was taught a dishonest version of Britain's slavery history. A very dishonest one, a sort of propaganda version, which says that Britain is the good guys of slavery, that Britain taught the world to abandon slavery and, and plays down Britain's deep financial debt to those whom it enslaved, plays down the very numbers of them. I, mean, uh, wasn't that, I wasn't taught that 3.1 million Africans were shipped across the Atlantic to satisfy the greed of my, of my ancestors. Uh, I was taught that they were good people. Um, so, so you know, and, but I don't think we're alone in thinking. I mean, perhaps sixty or seventy more people who know they have this history in their family have come forward too um, uh, since we launched this group. Wow, that's really amazing. Well, I mean, I started the national campaign for an official British Truth and Reconciliation Commission. However, on many levels, I feel it's already happening in universities and national institutions and museums, but and most importantly, within families. And you've just mentioned 60 to 70 people coming forward who'd like to confront this, even if the government is, is vying away from it at the moment. Um, and I just, I just wondered, how does this play with the image of Britain being into fair play? I mean, isn't that one of our biggest myths of our national character or or if it's true do you think there's an opportunity here to show our, that our, our culture of fair play yeah there are lots of myths atta attached to britain and and it's supposed exceptional national character i, I mean the, the awful thing is that you know i think i've been on a huge learning experience in in recent years and, and I, i've learnt that 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 they are myths. I don't think Britain is more decent and more fair than any any uh, democ democratic country. I, I think I think what we we are unique at is in bending and turning the our more uncomfortable modern history to our own advantage and and telling it to, telling it to ourselves in a way that makes us seem exceptional and better than other people. And and that's driven some really appalling. Um, things in modern Britain, you know, from the denial of the, the claims of the Windrush victims, if you like, through to our, our distancing ourselves from the rest of the world because we think we can do things better. Uh, they're myths, and, uh, and I, I think we need to throw them out and, and start to be healthier. Britain's not, didn't have a better empire or, or a more decent, decent history of dealing with those, those poor and unequal to us and uh, and it doesn't now what would you say as somebody that's been on this journey would be any incentive for potentially giving up one's power or privilege or even sense of self and culture in embarking on this kind of journey if you were beneficiary as perhaps all of us are from slavery well I think what's been interesting is other people you know, people who, who, who are more visibly the heirs of the wealth of slavery than I have, have found coming out about it, um, acknowledging it, saying sorry, to be immensely um, fruitful to their own lives. I, I mean, uh, the, one of the members of our group, um, David Lasselzel, the, who is the Earl of Harwood, um, and, and 
who, whose house in, well, he no longer owns it, but the house that he, he runs um, for, for the benefit, for educational purposes in, in Yorkshire, Harwood House, is one of the biggest uh, and grandest houses built with slavery money that we know of. And he, his dad was first cousin of Queen Elizabeth. But, and he, um, good on him, back in 2007, on the anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade, um, started a program of acknowledgement and he visited Barbados where his ancestors made money, made, you know, has, has many links which continue with the local uh, black community um, and conducts all sorts of repair efforts. And he says it's been entirely good for me and my family, you know. And I think what he means by that is that, you know, they have new friendships, they have new alliances, they have... Um, and a sense that they're actually doing the right thing by the past instead of, like so many others, trying to keep it papered over. Critics to, of, of people like me go, well, slavery's always been everywhere and it's part of the human condition and you know, it's wrong to single out the British when everyone else was, has always done it throughout history. And you go, no, but the British, well, the European enslavement of Africans and, and the t transport of them across the Atlantic it is not like all other slavery. It is unique because it was industrialised. It was entirely legal um, and it was entirely racist. It was quite clear that, that the British, by the end of the 18th century, when my, and my own ancestors could not have enslaved a white person. They believed that Africans were lesser and they had philosophers to tell them that. And, and, you know, they were Christians. They had to believe that Af because they couldn't cre treat other human beings the way they treated Africans, which was like farm animals. And my ancestors you know, bought more young women in order to breed more slaves. That's treating a human being like an animal. And, and some of the punishments meted out in the Jamaican, well, across the Caribbean on the plantations were... Well, there were things you wouldn't. No decent, normal person would do to any animal, but they wouldn't even contemplate it. You know, and they include the fact that you know, the white employees were clearly encouraged to use the, the African women as they wished sexually because um, a, any child that was born would then belong to the owner and, and children of mixed race were more valuable than once entirely African. And obviously, since since they lived in huge fear, the white people, because they were outnumbered by the enslaved population by about 10 to 1 uh, on the plantations, they were, acted with utter savagery when faced with anything from revolt to merely cheek, you know. And, and they, since there was no sanction on, on rape or murder, they murdered and raped, and they also tortured. The tortures, you know, some of these people were psychopathic and the tortures were the kind of things that psychopaths do. The only thing that seems to have held them back was the value of the Africans. I, I worked out that in modern terms, an, an enslaved African adult male was, was equivalent financially to you know, an expensive car. £70 um, then probably translates to about £60,000 today. But all the same, the profits they made were so huge that they did work people to death habitually. The average lifespan of an adult African in the 18th century on one of the Caribbean plantations run by the British uh, was four years. It was cheaper to work them to death and buy another African from West Africa than it was to look after them properly.
Guys, it's... It, it, it's unbelievably savage. And, and it's also... It, 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 there are other societies, including ancient Rome, where slaves had more rights than this. You know, where there are societies where, which had slavery, but it wasn't legal to murder or rape a slave. Oh, or it was socially not, not acceptable. These things weren't true. And this is in the, you know, this is, these are people, Christians, as I keep, keep, keep reminding myself, in the modern age. I mean, men who, who I read their letters and I'd see the books they read and they don't seem very unlike me. That's, you know, really important, I think, to the telling of the whole story. Well, I, actually linking it to the present, and I sometimes wonder if there is a subconscious fear on behalf of, of those that have benefited of revenge when they learn about this history. Why wouldn't the descendants want revenge? And that actually this is a fear like the U in the US as a fear of becoming a white minority uh, or is it a fear of losing one's power, one's privilege, so one's got to keep it up? I just wonder what was the reaction of the descendants in the Caribbean of the slaves that you spoke to? You know, so I went out to, to, to the sites of the plantations where my ancestors you know, permitted the death and cruelty. I mean, interestingly, they, they hardly ever went there. I mean, in Jamaica, I was the first one of, our ancestors, of us ever to, to have visited and had those conversations. I mean, they were absentee landlords. I, I said to people I met, I explained why I was there and who I was, and, and I, I was really blown away by the generosity and... and you know, people were very interested. They were, they were, a lot of people said to me, we, this is a good day. This is a great day. I mm. had no idea that people like you were ever going to admit this or talk to us. And now you are. Wow. And I, and I, you know, I certainly encountered some anger, but it wasn't directed against me. It was directed through the injustice, which, you know, someone in, in Bloody Bay in Tobago, where, where we had one of the plantations said to me, you know, why is it that when my, my people, whose names I don't even know because you suppressed them and buried them without markers when they died, my, my ancestors worked so hard to make you so rich and were still so poor. Where, where, where is the logic there? Where is the fairness there if you pretend to be a nation that believes in justice? And, I, you know, there is no answer to that. But I, I have no, no aggression or anger at all. And I think, I mean, I'm afraid. But in, equally, when I, when I tell some members of my family I was going to write this book and do that, they were, they were terrified. They said, you're going to get our windows smashed or worse, which hasn't happened. And I think this may be projection. I think, I think there's a deep underlying guilt in a lot of people like me, in, in, you know, in, white, in, in the white society that runs things, about how, 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 badly we've, how badly we've done. And I think you project your own shame and imagine that others will be angry with you, but that's just imagining that the bad things in you are shared by other people. I've had no, no, no aggression at whatsoever from, from people. I've, I've heard anger about the way Britain's British society is structured today and, and, and systemic racism that limits some black people's lives. Um, but that's, no, one bl no one has actively blamed me for that. And, I mean, and that's a real lesson. I think, sorry, I'm, I'm going on. Let no, I think it's a very know. important. I mean, when I, when I started this project, in, in a, and I first had an idea of what those records contained. And I, I asked a number of friends of, of colour to, 
you know, what I should do with it, you know, what they thought would actually be useful. Because you know, I could see, you know, it was a kind of self-indulgent act. I mean, I knew I had to get the material out because it was wrong for it to be suppressed. But, but you know, but it's also a kind of egotistical act to, to, you know, to use it as an author. Um, and, um, and one friend said to me, I, you know, I really can't read any more slavery porn, as she put it. But I do want to know how you white people are going to heal yourselves. And I found that uh, I don't have an answer to that, but I, but I have that thought remains in my mind today and, and did throughout the whole of the writing it. it were we are the sick society. We, you know, we, we, we are the people who did this appalling act and now won't, won't acknowledge it properly. And so we, we, how do we heal ourselves? A lot of my interest has come from my experience of watching South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission yeah. and being lucky enough to live quite closely through the process of Mandela's trying to transform the country into a rainbow nation. And it reminded me of, of the story of Mandela and his prison guard where he humanised, he said, we've both been dehumanised yes. in this process. And he invited his prison guard up on stage for his inauguration and he offered him back his humanity. And it sounds like your experience from the descendants of the slaves has been somewhat similar, that they've offered a handout to you and said, we both need to come back from this so that we can move forward together. Would you say there's similarities? Um, of, of course there are. I, I mean, and, and I think... Um... You know, one of the things that you know, when I talk to people descended from slavery, particularly in the Caribbean and here, I mean, descended from the enslaved, I, I, I mean, words like peace and love come up very soon. And British people are obsessed that, that the Caribbeans just want money off us. But I go, actually, the conversations I have is they'd like to have a conversation <laughs> and they'd like to, you know, an apology would be nice, as someone put it, and doesn't cost you anything. And I think, and then people do talk, particularly in the Caribbean, to other successful, you know, or partially successful efforts made in the 20th century around peace and reconciliation, you know, over appalling wounds. And they look at South Africa and they look at the, what, what the British government, the accommodation the British government has reached with some people in Kenya. And they look at uh, the British apology to the Irish over their failures around the Irish famine of the 1840s and most of all at um, the accommodations and reparations made between Germany and the Jewish people after the Second World War and go these things are all all have some bearing on on the 250 year long crime you committed against the people of West Africa and their descendants in the Caribbean why can't we talk about this in the way that you've been prepared to about those? Have you heard the answer to that of why we can't? Uh, well, I've never heard it, heard a, a satisfactory answer. I mean, I mean, the answer I get is in is uh, in legalese, or it's there's no point, or you know. And I think these are kind of these are puny defences put up to, which conceal enormous shame and senses of guilt coupled with the fact that an awful lot of educated white Britain is incredibly ignorant about the story and misinformed about the story. And the other problem, of course, is that, um, I mean, I literally was reading a, a right-wing magazine the other day, 
saying why well, reparations should never even be talked about. And, and the, the author's arguments, actually, I wrote to him and said, I'd be happy to write a response to this, but I got no response <laughs> from him. His author's arguments are entirely couched in this is a, a plot by the left to destroy capitalism. So, so this issue, which is about nations and peoples living more happily and peacefully together, has been sidelined by the culture war into yet another left versus right argument. And that's so sad, so sad. I mean, so, imagine if people said Jewish people making peace with Germany after the war is just about the left wing trying to get back at capitalists. I mean, it would, it's unthinkable. It, it is terribly sad, and I'm finding it quite difficult when I explain a truth commission to people. They go very quickly to the thinking it's more adversarial than what it is. Basically, after South Africa's Truth Commission, I embarked on my own personal Truth Commission after being interracially adopted into a privileged British family, and I went in search of my Indian birth father. And when I found him, I also uncovered a conflicting story of empire, which means I've been both, I've both benefited from colonialism through my adopted parents and carry the history of oppression from my birth parents a story of forced migration from their homeland when it was signed over to the British, astonishingly, by a direct relative, my adoptive father's ancestor, Sir Henry Lawrence. And my South African friends say, so the people that saved you caused the problem in the first place, and now you're meant to be grateful. But whichever way I look at it, I have both these histories within me, yes. and I love both these men. Um, and it's just made my reaction really be to redouble, redouble my efforts to make sure that I don't fall into binaries of black and white and to see it as more complicated. And that's why I wanted to set up a truth commission because it's not adversarial, it's not looking at goodies and baddies, it's a chance to hear all sides of the story, to meet each other and work out a way forward. And I just wondered whose stories you think need to be told that haven't been told and what the power of that story is. Well, I, I, I think your argument for a truth commission is, is you know, you, you've just put it absolutely perfectly there. And, and, and it, 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 it really hard to see an argument against it. And I think, you know, it, it all comes down to a, a problem in our politics today where, where the division seems to be less between right and left, but more between hope and hopelessness. Mm. And, and, you know, the, the progressive idea of talking, of looking ways forward about seeking peace about trying to address inequalities based in this awful history it's all about hope it's about it's about a belief that human beings can be better and interact better the opposite is about giving up just saying let's put up the fences and look after ourselves and deny any attempts to to, to improve things so i think that comes you know to the root of it so the story the stories you, one needs to do to hear are are of hope and and construction and turning over anciently based problems with new solutions. I, I mean, I have to retell the stories of the horrors of British slavery to people like me because they just don't know them and they're inclined to. You know, I still hear people go, "Oh, maybe they were better off in the Caribbean islands than they were at home in Africa." You know, serious people say things like that. You have to remind people that you know not owning your own children is is a, a crime, you know, a, a deep crime against all humanity, not not just a byproduct of some 
economic migration. Those stories have to be told, but they're not, in the end, the useful stories for the future. I mean, what a lot of people who, who've seen our campaigning in as a slavery, they say, please do, do be careful with your messaging, not not to paint all people of colour or, or people descended from the wrongs of wrongs of colonialism as um, as victims. And, and so that's really important. It is about coming back into the nuance, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. and, and I feel like almost my character, having been interracially adopted into a completely white environment, was kind of formed, I had to poke, constantly poke, to try and say, but there's another point of view. And then it was like, well, you've got a chip on your shoulder and yeah, just get over it. I mean, I mean, that, that's really, I mean, the thing is, I, actually, you know, we need to hear stories of people like you. You know, those are important. I, I mean, and a lot of people who come, who read my book or hear about our campaign and come forward to me go, what should I do now? And, and kind of the first, you know, first thing you want to say is, when did you last talk to your, your neighbours who are descended from the enslaved or who are of colour or who are here in some way or the other because of the effects of British colonialism? Why, why, why don't you ask them? Why are you asking me? people who are white, educated and wealthy because of British colonial, the British imperialistic, imperialist period. Don't ask, don't, and don't listen. Very busy with our own opinions, busy telling people what to think and what they shouldn't think, but not asking questions. Just listen. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Which is why, I mean, with, with Heirs of Slavery, which, which is, you know, several journalists who are part of it, where people are very used to professionally telling people what to think. And, you know, we say to each other, our this organisation is set up to promote listening and supporting, not taking, being another set of guilty white people trying to take the lead. One thing to quote from your book, you said we need to seek between the lines for truth because there's very little accounts. Five, I think you said, of first person testimonies mm. um, existing that te of telling us of the enslaved lives. So one thing I keep tri tripping up on is people's concept of truth, A, that there can only be one truth. Yes. How do we hear the stories from the past in a way that we can acknowledge them without these testimonies. And also, it was so far back in the past. Can you connect the past to the present? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that that's, those are really important questions. And, and clearly, you know, part of what Britain did in its slavery period was suppress not just the stories, but, but the actual personalities of the, the people that enslaved. All my ancestors renamed every African who arrived on their plantation. They were called joke names out of Shakespeare and the Bible, you know, Delilah or Caesar or Othello and so on. Wouldn't allow them to be baptised for most of that period and, and basically tr did their best to destroy their own stories, their histories and, uh, and their humanity. So those accounts don't remain. But, you know, I, there I, f I found one in my family's history, a first-person account of what it was like to be enslaved um, on, their, on their plantation in Jamaica. So, so that research must continue. But I think more important, probably, is the acceptance that that was an, a crime against humanity and immense and hugely important for the finances of modern Britain. But then to look at the damage that continues today. Because... That's what we can address today once that acknowledgement is that slavery was wrong and huge is done. And, and again and again, 
example, you know, we all, all know from educational stats and criminological stats and, and health stats and so on, just how disadvantaged people of uh, African and Caribbean origin are, and, uh, as, and all people, um, and people of Asian ancestry as well, I in our society. But also the continuing depredations on what were the slave, the, the slave economies. Last week, Britain, which is currently refusing to talk about reparations, announced £10,000 bounties to teachers from Ghana and, and the English-speaking Caribbean who wanted to come and work in Britain. And this is an act of looting. And you're literally stealing teachers away from much poor and nurses from much poorer countries to fill in the gaps that policy has left in Britain. And, and this in a country which is anti-immigrants to begin with. Uh, yeah, that I'm, I'm almost speechless here. It, it, it's disgusting. And, and, it, and, it, and I, you know, I've been in Jamaican schools uh, and talked to head teachers there about it is impossible in a Kingston downtown primary school to recruit a maths teacher. They've all gone to, to other Anglophone countries, lured by wages that were three times the height. So that's a continuing exploitation, racially based exploitation, ex exploiting the, the legacies of slavery and our failures to help the, Car the Caribbean nations after we abolished slavery. I said this the other day in a forum and an and a, a educated white person said to me, we gave them paradise islands to live on, what more do they want? I have to say that is not an uncommon view from the educated, wealthy white Britain. That, I mean, so we've got a long lot to do, a lot to do. Our, our great-grandfather, I now realise, sat on a commission in the 1920s set up by the British government to talk to liberation movements in, in the Caribbean, which were basically labour movements that wanted um, democratic rights for the Caribbean colonies. And, he, and, and, and my, my great-grandfather said about saying the Caribbean people were not educated or clever enough to have, their, have democracy and they went, shouldn't be allowed it. The scary thing is that when I've spoken to other people <coughs> um, from, who are dealing with like the Gambian Truth Commission, and yes. they say to me, we need to look for patterns when you're dealing with different parts of Britain's colonial past. And what you've just said then, I mean, was absolutely said in India, you know, they'll make a hash of it. They're not clever enough to run their own country. And I think yeah, yeah. Gandhi said something like, but it's still our country and yeah, yeah, yeah. mess of it, it's our country. But, but the same people, those that sense those people now go, oh, well, let's not pay any reparations to the Caribbean countries because they're, just, they're all corrupt and they would just squander it because basically they're black and stupid. I mean, the <laughs> same thing, the same codes are being used that were used to justify slavery. For every one of me, there's a hundred other middle-class Brits who, 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 will give you, who will give you an explanation for you know, crime stats among, among people of African and Caribbean origin, um, which will basically repeat the same racist trope. Well, I noticed in South Africa, working with ANC cadres after, the, after independence, was that they were saying, we may have been given our political freedom, but we haven't been given our economic freedom. Yeah. That's still being run by the City of London with strings attached. Yeah, and I mean, and that's a really interesting parallel because, of course, that's what, what people in the Caribbean said, you know, throughout the 20th century, is, is you still structure it so we have to import everything from Britain, every manufactured good. Deny us economic empowerment or economic development so we remain a client state. And then it feeds into that racist rhetoric of look at yeah, exactly. the failing nation. And then you steal all their teachers.
<laughs> you know, in Haiti, the poorest country in the entire region, it pays 60% of its GDP in, in debt repayments. The debt is about to be the, renewed. And because of inflation, the debt is going to go way yes. up again. No, and that's really, which is why one of the most interesting uh, calls around the, you know, the CARICOM reparations you know, list of subjects we discussed is for debt forgiveness, which of course, you know, in the end doesn't come direct from the taxpayers' pocket, you know, and doesn't put money in the pockets of corrupt politicians. I quote, because that's not how how debt cancellation works. It's really interesting because I, I mean, I worked for Oxfam a bit on the. Well, I was working in policy stuff around the 2008 campaign for debt cancellation for the poorest countries. And, and of course, a lot of the, the rhetoric around that is, well, if they want to be enjoy the benefits of international trade and, and capitalism, then they have to behave like grown up nations. And that, mm. that means, you know, it's words like grown up. And that means that means um, servicing their debts like other countries do. But these debt, but when you see the circumstances in which these debts were granted, you go, well, you know, they're, they're, there's no parallel at all. I mean, if you, if some greedy Western country gave a dictator like President Mobutu in Congo money to buy himself gold-plated aeroplanes, bribed their way to being allowed to do that, it's not reasonable to uh, ask people 50 years later to go on servicing that debt. But, but the legacies of, of the slavery period affect our society today in inequality and lack of social mobility and and those are the stories we need we need to hear from hearing that to coming back to in your book you mentioned thistlewood period when only one white man was tried for crimes against black people where he killed yes. four of his black partners but he was not punished as long as he left the island but yes. at the same time the normal punishment for a black person who raised a hand against a white was death well, there's one set of laws for whites and another for blacks. And, and there are some people that would say that that continues today towards it's hardly equivalent. Sorry, I mean, I hope it's not insulting, but the relationship today between black people and the police and the sus laws, they would say, you know, there is, I often hear them saying there's one set of laws for us and there's another set of laws for white people in Britain, and statistically that does play out. I, I think it, entirely. I mean, there's a story in the paper this morning about how, how if you're black, you're more likely to be remanded in custody than if you're white when accused of the same crime. You know, if you look at police restraint, um, people dying in, in police yeah. custody in restraint, black people seven times more likely to die than, than white people for, after restraint by the police. I mean, it, it's absolutely clear that that the law is is unfair on racial grounds and unbalanced and absolutely clear that we've known this for a long time and we're not our steps to to address it aren't getting anywhere and this is why you know initiatives like yours are, are part of the hope principle that is the way forward we have to keep believing we can make things better whatever the evidence to the contrary is what I struggle with, though, is how to create a safe space so that people can tell their stories. Um, because I have seen how important, whether it was through making films or watching the Truth Commission in South Africa, if somebody feels safe, there's a therapeutic process in being heard, being recorded, being acknowledged, being believed. Maybe we can start that in our village halls and in our fates and in our, you know, or maybe it needs to be a little bit more protected than that.
When you went to the Caribbean, what effects did you see from the past, you know, on education, on family breakup and things like that? There, there are the obvious things that, uh, I mean, I think British people, again, through their ignorance and because they generally go to the Caribbean to, to stay in hotels and lie on beaches, you are, are not aware of, of, of poverty in, in the former British colonies in the Caribbean um, and how that shows itself in, in education and health outcomes and so on. Um, and, and we also got to remember that, I mean, there are, there are countries like Guyana, which were, were, one, were among the richest sugar-producing colonies, that now are among the poorest in the world, well, in the hemisphere. If you look at education and health statistics, I mean, Guyana has offshore oil, but the benefits of that has not gone to the Guyanese. I, you know, it was a big education for me. And one of the things that I kind of discount, I hadn't really been aware of is, is what, is colorism. Mm. And, and I was told this, you know, really very vividly when I asked several people about, you know, how they felt slavery affected their lives today. And it was the issue they, they brought up, which is that it, to this day, your skin colour, even in the Caribbean, is kind of a, a, a guarantor of, of what kind of work, uh, what, what social class you will be in. And of course, someone said to me, this comes straight from you. From, this is your, you taught us to think like this. And of course, I knew, I knew this from reading my family's records. They encouraged the white employees on, on the plantation to, ha to, to exploit the black women, and often resulting in babies, and the babies were more valuable because they had white blood in them and got better jobs. It hasn't changed, and that's um, very visible and absolute link to the past. I mean, there are others where, you know, the really interesting scientific work around inherited trauma and so on, and, and what centuries of mask the the male role in the family being destroyed and denied how that's left society but and those are worth talking about too it is heartbreaking hearing um about how as soon as they arrived off the ship if they survived they would be sold to, and families would be separated i mean they've been separated in africa as well but that, and, and it does remind me of kind of what was going on with trump on the border not so long long ago and so perhaps we haven't learned the lessons from the past and then maybe it would benefit us all if we kind of looked at that i mean one, one of the things i find i'm jumping a bit here but it, it really irritates me is inheritance of ill-begotten gains potentially are passed from one generation to the next whereas if you talk about the negative side you're meant to just get over it that's a contradiction is it not that connection to the past and the present and the privilege inherited privilege and inherited trauma that's what we're trying to deal with is it not I, absolutely I, I mean I, and I think that's really interesting to explore in my book I wrote I, I talked to some psychologists and psych I mean academic psychologists and practicing ones in, in the Caribbean and, and read the work of a brilliant professor now dead called um, Alfred Hickley you know and they go go very in into the the really powerful evidence around different populations you know, of, of West African origin and how how much more mental health problems there are in even in sim kind of similar societies if the population went through the slavery period or if they didn't leading on from that Several people suggested to me that those who enslaved haven't just inherited wealth. They also inherited, a, you know, an evil for which those who directly came before them were wholly responsible. So there's an inheritance, I won't say guilt, because 
that's kind of a loaded word and it implies some some sort of um agency in the acts done but there's an inheritance of evil which has led some people to talk about you know the phrase they use is white psychosis uh, and the the notion that you need an absolution for an entire nation to get over the fact that its foundations and its own dna is based in an act of such extreme evil <laughs> it'd be quite hard to put that forward to readers of the daily mail but but <laughs> but i think when we talk about inherited trauma you know the the real fact of that and that damaging lives today from those of the descendants of the enslaved what people like me need to think also about what we've inherited other than privilege I don't know if you've seen any examples that have ever crossed your mind that you think of how this plays out in society, our, our trauma from that evil that you're talking about. Really hard to say. When I started on this journey, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, my initial rather sort of pat line was to say, well, I don't feel guilty because I didn't have any part in these decisions, but I do feel shame that I've ignored it all my life and ignored not just the history, but the, the ongoing consequences of the history. I'm ashamed to have been one of those white liberal people who, who went, well, I'm not a racist, uh, but not done anything about racism you know, when it's there in front of you. So I think there's many aspects to this, but, but, but certainly feeling shame and, you know, and failing to act on it is not good for anybody because in the end it turns in on itself and just makes you angry and bitter. And I think our nation in its treatment of people who are of colour to this very day has an awful lot to be ashamed of that it's in denial about. I'm quite shocked by the names in your book, my whole landscape of people I grew up with, the Codringtons, the Campbells, yes. the Gladstones, and it's like a whole landscape alters in front of you. You, you some, some of them, not least the Gladstones, and what W. Gladstone, the Prime Minister, was the, the great reformer, the great liberaliser. Um, but he voted against abolition of slavery uh, in 1831, and his father was one of the wealthiest slave owners of all of them. And Charlie Gladstone, I'm glad to say, who, who's the, his direct descendant, is a member of our Heirs of Slavery group. I saw that. Is this only affecting those families in Britain, or do you think it's societal? Did we all benefit from slavery? Well, I, no, I, th I don't think you can say that, because clearly... Uh, uh, People, people who migrated here, who, who's, whose families migrated here um, post the 19th century, but it's quite hard to make that connection. Though Britain, you know, was wealthier as a result. But I think in in the 19th century, it's clear that that great economic boom, which went on for decades, um, was very much fueled by wealth that came from slavery. And what and what's also clear from my own ancestors' accounts books is that the British government was taking more in. Um, taxes from the, their slavery enterprises everything from per, per capita of, of enslaved person to to every barrel of sugar produced uh, than they ever made in profits so people say that Brit gdp 11 percent of britain's britain's national wealth in 1800 was derived from the many slavery industries and and it, i think you know people like me whose family history is known and, and people like the Trevelyans and the Harwoods, to whom there are, you know, grand houses associated with them, are very visible. But the bankers and the insurers made more money and are much less visible. And then the awful fact that because sugar was so valuable, we shipped everything out. 
So I can see from my ancestors' records that they were shipping out barrels of beef and fish from Scotland, salted barrels, to feed the enslaved people because it wasn't worth producing those in Jamaica because their labour was better used producing sugar. So that means the herring industry in Scotland um, just uh, was people who worked in that were benefiting from this massive market. At just as every piece of clothing the enslaved people wore in the Caribbean was was produced mainly in Britain, mainly in Easter Scotland, actually. So the tentacles of it spread very widely. The gun industry in Birmingham, the shipbuilding industries all around Britain. It, so it's kind of hard to dissociate totally. For me, I find it, I feel also very touched. Literally, it feels very close. When I hear that my taxes have gone for paying off slave owners up to 2015, so nearly everybody alive in Britain who pays tax mm. has actually got some quite direct link to this story. Yes, that's right. So it's a huge sum of money, uh, the biggest sum the British government borrowed in the entire 19th century, it's a, put at £19 billion pounds today, that was paid out to the owners of the enslaved people in order to basically compensate them for giving up their property in at the end of slavery in the 1830s. That loan was still being paid off, was finally paid off in, in 2015. So it was, so the, the paying off of the debt was partly done by descendants of the enslaved people themselves. That's the irony of it. Yeah, it really is. So you said that Sir, Sir Jeff Palmer, you quote, said, we cannot change the past, but we can change the consequences of the past which I find really inspiring, just ending up um, with that. What work are you doing? Are you doing anything personally or is your family? Um, well, I mean, obviously, Heirs of Slavery is and, all, and the book is and everything else you're doing, but I just wondered, when people think of reparations, how do you see it on a personal level? I mean, I've taken, I mean, I've handed over all the proceeds of the book to, to various um, charities and educational organisations. That, that in the Caribbean and in Britain that, that look at, um, that you know, try to address um, some of the problems we've been talking about. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and I'll, I'll continue doing that, you know, for the rest of my life. I mean, uh, a proportion of my income will go to those things. But, but these are tiny tokens, I'm not pretending, you know, they're, they're there to make me feel a bit better, uh, which, you know, they do. And, and I've making relationships and meeting people and talking to them in, in these organizations is really important for me and, and they're very generous in that um but I, th I think for me you know what the what i've heard from people that people descended from the enslaved that i talked to about this using what influence and power i have as a journalist as a connected person in, in this sort of tiny white you know establishment um is as important but I think I'm also, I, I, what I also have been told is that helping other people come out and acknowledge this history in their families and apologise for not doing anything about it or denying it is important to, to the descendants of the enslaved because that does change the conversation. It certainly does. I mean, I do, it, it's obviously completely different, but from my personal experience, when I met my birth mother and my birth father, one day I completely um, couldn't play my role anymore and I just said, you need to hear my truth. And he found that very difficult. We were in a public place. I was crying a lot. You find it awkward. Um, but he sat with it for hours. He listened. He just 
listened. And that became the basis of our relationship. And we've got a brilliant relationship. Oh, good. My birth mother remained in denial for whatever reasons. And I mean, there are reasons. She was deeply traumatized. And so there was not really a relationship. And I, I just, I, I think that's an analogy of just how powerful it can be just to listen and acknowledge, really. Yes. And gosh, you know, learning to listen. <laughs> for someone like me is a huge thing to learn at this age but gosh it's a good and useful and I just want to thank you for really bringing up the effect on <coughs> women your book was amazing I mean that's something that's come up in my talks about other truth commissions happening now around the world that the way women's experience um, of trauma is often not acknowledged enough and you really i mean it's incredibly painful to read but just some of the facts and the fact that you said yes. the everyday loss of children was one of the hidden traumas of slavery from the mothers yes, yes. i mean and just oh unthinkable no there's some awful stories there in in every extreme situation women women are more vulnerable and may suffer far worse just like children but um but this this industrialized women's um women's suffering made women's <laughs> suffering was part of the making of money yes yes it's a heavy history well you were brave very brave to go there um and i'm very glad you're out there <laughs> I, I think I, I mean privileged to go there it was brilliant <laughs> it changed oh. my life i was a lucky person oh really you really feel it's changed your life yeah yeah no totally and you know i'm really i'm in you know, the privilege of having access to those papers extraordinary and by the way, if anyone would like to see the papers, just get in touch with me and I'll send you everything I've got because it's very wrong that they're not oh. in the library, but we haven't managed to get that to happen. And where can we get your book? Uh, it's on Amazon or email me and I'll sign a copy and send it to you. Thanks to all our guests for sharing their personal stories, their experiences and their expertise. If you've enjoyed the programme, please follow, subscribe and share. And if you have future suggestions for interviewees, do email me at info at britishtruthcommission.com. Importantly, if you support the call for an official British Truth and Reconciliation Commission to be established, please sign and share the petition. The link is listed below. Thanks. <laughs>